Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. It says, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother, Mary, was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you, Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took to him his wife, and did not know her until she had brought forth her firstborn son. And he called his name Jesus. The chapter opened with the genealogy of the king. Matthew wants us to understand that Jesus is the rightful heir to the throne of his father David in verses 1 through 17. And now Matthew describes Jesus' divine origin in verses 18 through 25. And it makes perfect sense that Luke, in his gospel, will focus on the birth of Jesus from the perspective of Jesus' mother. In Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 56. And here in Matthew's gospel, the attention is drawn to the perspective of Mary's husband, Joseph. In verses 18 through 25. The text begins with the realization of the divine will. Jesus, Jesus is the predicted king. He is the promised king. And he will make an entry into the world in both a natural way and a supernatural way. He will come onto the world's stage. But in that entry, it's going to create profound distress for one young Jewish man In the Galilee, Joseph's distress and dilemma will require a personal revelation in order to address his profound difficulty, perhaps fear, that Mary's pregnancy is in fact not a miraculous pregnancy, but betrayal. Joseph is willing to bear Mary's public humiliation. And this should draw attention right away to you when you say, okay, well, what does that mean? Well, that's exactly what Jesus does for you. Jesus is willing to bear our public humiliation and our private sin. The difference, of course, is 
Our guilt is justified. Our guilt is real. Our guilt is actual and tangible. But Mary hasn't done anything wrong. We are not the unjust victims of sin. We're guilty of sin. But Jesus will bear our public humiliation and our private sin. I also want to draw your attention to something else. No words of Joseph are recorded. He never says a single word in the text or anywhere in the New Testament. He never speaks to his wife. He never speaks to the angel. We have no record of his emotional circumstance or his actual conversation. Joseph will let his actions do his speaking for him. Joseph will overcome his initial suspicions by careful thought and real love, but also divine revelation. Instead of divorce, he's going to marry this girl. And when the angel instructs him to take Mary and the child to a place of safety, he will abandon everything and obey. Think about it just for a moment. Instead of abandoning his wife and child... Joseph says, stays, and he'll protect, and he'll obey. And when Joseph is instructed to return from Egypt with the mother and the child, when when it's time to come back, he will come back. And the text refers to him as righteous. What does that mean? If it means anything, it must mean at least two things. That he's willing to hear the voice of God and obey the voice of God. And if it means anything else, it means that that prompt obedience is going to result in something wonderful for the rest of the world. But let's look at his deep distress. Look at verse 18 for yourself. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Very little is said of Mary in Matthew's gospel. And only one verse is devoted to the virgin birth. You would think something this enormous would require a little more explanation. But how do you explain it? God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, prompts Matthew to simply write, She was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Whatever else this means, again, the birth of Jesus was not accomplished by human effort or human initiative. The collection of humanity all over the world couldn't have a gigantic prayer meeting ushering in the incarnation of God or the presence of Jesus into the world. Emil Bruner wrote, quote, when Jesus Christ comes to anyone in history, even in his first coming to Mary, it's always the result of the Holy Spirit, not of human preparation or enterprise, unquote. The Lord comes, not based on human preparation. And sometimes Jesus can show up in your life when you least expect it. Not in a welcome way, but 
even perhaps in an unwelcome way. You're not looking for God. You're not looking for Christ. You're not even looking for salvation or redemption. And in our culture, when a person is engaged to be married, um, it implies a future marriage. But in our culture and society, you can break off an engagement. If a guy asks you to marry you and you decide against it, you can walk away from the proposal. But in the ancient world, it wasn't that way. In the first century, in a Jewish betrothal, it always involved three things. Number one, an engagement by arrangement. In the first century, arranged marriages meant that the parents determined who a child would or wouldn't marry. And I guess the older I get, as I'm a father and a grandfather, I'm sort of wishing that arranged marriages could take place because I'm thinking, you know what? I don't want to risk my granddaughters to just any guy. My friend K.P. Yohanan, who comes from India, where they still have arranged marriages, he says, in our culture and society, we start off cold, 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 and then we get hot, hot, hot. <laughs> in your culture, you start off hot, 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 and get cold, cold, cold. In the first century, in the time of the Jewish people, if they agreed, there was a betrothal, there was a, a determined time. And during this determined time, the couple could either agree or disagree to go forward with the engagement. And if they agreed to go forward with the engagement, the betrothal had all the strength of a marriage contract. It had all the strength of a covenant and it was binding by law and it could only be broken through the legal process of a divorce. And the betrothal lasted one year. And it was during that time of the betrothal that Joseph discovers that Mary is pregnant. And number three, the marriage would, at least in the Jewish culture and society, would come to full fruition at the time of the consummation of the couple. And so the text says, before they came together, that is, after the engagement, after the betrothal, prior to the con consummation, the text says that Mary was found with child by the Holy Spirit. John MacArthur writes, quote, One critic has waved his fist at God and called him an unholy liar with these words, quote, There was nothing peculiar about the birth of Jesus. He was not God incarnate. No virgin mother bore him. The church in its ancient zeal fathered a myth and became bound to it as dogma, unquote. But the testimony of the scripture stands in other words, it was MacArthur saying the critic, the skeptic, the doubter, the unbeliever will say, pshaw, come on. You Christians made this thing up. But the testimony of the scripture is that Jesus was born under supernatural circumstances. We call this the virgin birth. 
Catholics have seen in this event an occasion to elevate Mary to a position of equality in certain respects to Jesus himself. But Mary is the mother of Jesus in history, but Mary is not the mother of God in eternity. And so it's not quite right to think of Mary as the mother of God. She is not the mother of God. She didn't give birth to God. Jesus existed before Mary and before Mary's family. And if we way made our way back through the entire genealogy in chapter 1, Jesus precedes them. That's why the writer of Hebrews could rightly say, Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. Matthew Or Warren Wiersbe writes in his commentary, if Jesus Christ were conceived and born just as any other baby, then he could not be God. It was necessary for him to enter into this world through an earthly mother, but not be begotten by an earthly father, unquote. And if you stop and you pause, even for a moment, and you were to ask the question, could God become a human being. Even if you entertain that one single question, doesn't it make sense to you that he would be born under the most unusual of circumstances? He would say the most wonderful things that have ever been said. He would do the most wonderful things that have ever been done. He would have power over disease and death and demons. And that's exactly what we find in Jesus. Joseph, is faced with a profound difficulty. Look at verse 19. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. By the way, Joseph's name means, may he add. The idea being an addition that's joyous, abundant. The Bible describes him as a just man. What do you suppose that means? A just man. Bishop Hanley Mould, the great Greek scholar, interpreted the word just to mean a person who is anxious to do his true duty, both religious and domestic, That means to both honor God and to honor his family. And so obeying the law would mean exposing Mary to the religious authorities. John Corson describes Joseph as both a moral man and a merciful man. And then he brings us the attention to the fact that to find a man who is both moral and merciful is rare, right, ladies? Because if a man is moral in his morality, sometimes he'll elevate his own thought, his own thinking, and his own actions above everybody else, and he runs the risk of being judgmental. And often when a man is merciful, he's merciful because he requires mercy because he's done so many things that aren't exactly right. You know, when somebody in your family dies, your mind goes back to events of your life growing up and the things that happen. 
And my mother, God love her and God rest her soul, like many of us, sometimes made poor relationship choices. And she would fight often with my stepfather. And she would call my granny. We've been in a fight again and I'm going to come home and live with you. My grandma, the wisest woman perhaps who ever lived, (laughs) would say, sweetie, dearie, no, you're not coming here. I'm going to come over there and live with you. He's going to have to pay for this. (laughs) Sometimes in the fog of difficulty... We need a clear, clear ability to see through the difficulty. Obeying the law, like I said, would mean exposing Mary. John Corson writes, Had Joseph pressed charges against Mary, she would have been taken to the town square where she would stand in a box of manure up to her knees and the people in the city would have thrown rocks at her until she fell face down into the box of manure. That was the penalty for immorality. Joseph knows that he's not the father of this baby. Joseph knows Nothing about a revelation, and he certainly isn't in excited anticipation wondering if his girlfriend is going to be the bearer of the Messiah, and he doesn't want to expose her to public humiliation and disgrace. So I'm going to ask you a question. Do you think Joseph loves this girl? If you were to guess. I would guess yes as well. I'm thinking there's something, even in the midst of what might be a sense of profound betrayal and deep difficulty and profound shame. He loves this girl. And again, the very definition of justice requires that you consider the facts, that you acknowledge the evidence. Joseph, the text has already said, whether he loves her or not, may, we can make an argument, maybe he does, maybe he doesn't, but the text makes it abundantly clear he is just, and so Joseph wants to spare Mary humiliation, punishment, and shame. And again, we see a type and a picture of Jesus who wants to spare us punishment, humiliation, shame. But the birth of Jesus, again, I want to draw your attention to this fact. The birth of Jesus, the birth of Jesus creates a crisis in his life. Clearly in the life of Mary and in the life of Joseph, it's creating a crisis. And so what is he going to do? How will he deal with this? Joseph is not the father. Is he experiencing the normal range of emotions? Jealousy, anger, betrayal. How could he not be troubled? How could he not be disappointed? He entertains the notion that Mary 
may or may not be unfaithful. Clearly, how could he not entertain that notion? But I'm going to suggest to you that all the evidence, at least in my mind, seems to lean towards the idea that he loves her. He has no desire to subject her to humiliation. And he decides the best course of action is to divorce her quietly secretly but in that culture and society even to go through the normal legal processes of of a divorce it requires two or three witnesses which means to go through with the divorce he's going to have to disclose at least to two or three people that at least in his mind she has done something greatly wrong in his In his unconvinced mind, her sin is great. But Joseph seems to genuinely love her and he reveals a deep, deep, deep desire to protect her. The Bible does say that love covers a multitude of sins. And it makes perfect sense to me. It makes perfect sense to me that when you love someone, you're trying to protect them. And nobody knows that better than moms and dads who put up with so much from their children. And so, how many couples will face the challenge of a virgin birth? (laughs) Yeah, the answer is none. This seems to be a one-time event. But the birth of Jesus will create a predicament In each and every person's life. The birth of Jesus. The coming of Jesus. Is going to provide. And create a predicament. In every single person's life. In what way? Because the birth of Jesus. Is going to force each and every person. To make a decision about Jesus. To ask and answer the question. Who is this person? Why does he come into this world. Under such supernatural circumstances. It is an invitation if you will. To consider his claims. And the coming of Jesus. Will produce those kinds of dilemmas and quandaries. It will take place in each and every person's life. If you're faced with with the necessity of saying. Am I going to believe what the Bible says about Jesus? Or am I going to believe what my family, my friends, this culture and society says about Jesus? Some of you as kids growing up and maybe even now, you you play baseball. And if you've ever played baseball and you've gotten a hit and you've got on base and somehow something's gone wrong and you are trapped between the bases, it's called a pickle in baseball where you're, where you're, where the ball goes to the first baseman and you're trying to get to second base, but if you go to second base, you could be tagged out. You can't go back. You can't go forward. It's a dilemma. What are you going to do? You, you can't go back. You can't go forward. And the truth is that when you are faced with the claims of Jesus, with his identity and his ministry, You can't put that genie back in the bottle. You open up your Bible. You read a story of a person who comes to this world and he's born under supernatural circumstances and he lives this life and making the decision about Christ and his claims is going to put you at odds with the popular culture and its views of science and culture and philosophy. 
V. Raymond Edmond used to say, never doubt in the dark what God has told you in the light. And sometimes people think that Bible characters were idiots or stupid or naive. And Joseph is not stupid or naive. He knows, he knows, he knows that girls don't get pregnant on their own. And so poor Joseph, he needs light. He needs light. And that's exactly what verse 20 is going to provide. Look what it says. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. So what does Joseph do? He begins to think about his crisis. He begins to consider the predicament. The solution is going to require (laughs) a special revelation. In order to guide him out of this dilemma, in order to get him out of the predicament, he's going to need supernatural information from a supernatural source. Joseph is moral. Joseph is merciful. Joseph is logical. Is Joseph mystical? Joseph is a thinker. Joseph is a dreamer. In what way? While he thought about these things. In verse 20, do you suppose that this young or maybe even older Jewish man who's wife is pregnant and he's not the father, do you think that that's going to stimulate a lot of thinking? Yeah, I I think it is. He falls asleep and he dreams and an angel speaks to him. Do not be afraid. Why? In the New Testament, both in Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel, whenever angels appear, the first words out of their mouth is typically, do not be afraid. And the reason I think that the reason they say do not be afraid is because you're terrified. When a real angel shows up in your life, it's usually one of two reasons because you're experiencing judgment or you're about to die. (laughs) And if you're experiencing judgment or you're about to die, it can be kind of terrifying. But the angel says, don't be afraid. I suspect he is afraid, not just because the angel shows up, but he is concerned about how he's going to go forward because no matter how he goes forward, he's facing an uphill battle. It's more than just an explanation about an unwanted pregnancy. Joseph is going to face trial and Joseph is going to face persecution. And we know the choice that he's going to make. And by the way, Is this child going to be hated by the political authorities? Yeah, that's going to be a trial. Herod's going to try to kill this child. He's going to be hated by the political and the religious authorities. And you should ask yourself this question. Would you marry a pregnant woman knowing that you're not the father? 
Some of you might say, depends. Some of you might say, no. Whatever else is going on, God was preparing Mary's womb, but God was also preparing Joseph's heart. Maybe that's part of the Christmas story that you don't often hear about. He's preparing Mary's womb, but the special revelation that is going to be needed by Joseph is going to serve several purposes. The angel of the Lord appears to Joseph in the dream. The angel calls Joseph by name and ancestry, Joseph, son of David. Joseph is called by God to serve as the earthly protector of Jesus' mother and the earthly protector of the unborn child, the source of Mary's pregnancy is the Holy Spirit and the special revelation is going to include assurance and guidance and explanation and of course information about the future destiny of the child. And once again, the average Christian is rescued by revelation in what sense in the sense of the bible giving us an explanation of why things are the way that they are and i want you to note this about matthew because as we continue our study in matthew i want you to note in chapter one and chapter two and chapter three and chapter four everything that's going to be said about jesus from here on in or from here to chapter 5 with the Sermon on the Mount, from, from every insight that is given, Matthew is also going to cite the scriptures. The reason why this becomes important is because Matthew invites the reader to look at the scriptures and then look at Jesus. We understand Jesus by what the scriptures say, and we understand what the scriptures say by Jesus. That will never cease. And in verse 21, it says, and she will bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. The Lord picked out the name Jesus, savior. The Hebrew form of the name is Joshua or Yeshua or Yasha. It means Jehovah is salvation and the central meaning of the name means to deliver from some terrible disaster that leads to certain perishing. Have you ever met someone whose name fit them? Like let's say you meet a guy, he's six foot five, he weighs 300 pounds and they call him tiny. And you, you laugh because you go, ha <laughs> ha. That wouldn't be the name I would have picked out for you. <laughs> you pick out a name that you hope would suit the person, but Jesus' name suits him perfectly. He is the person who's going to save people from their sin. Jesus' name and Jesus' mission are exactly the same. He really is God. And he really will save. And look, the expression, he will save his people, is significant. Don't overlook that. He will save his people. 
The implication suggests that there are those who are not his people. The revelation isn't meant to exclude people. The revelation in the New Testament isn't meant to say, hey, there are some people that Jesus will willingly and gladly save, and there are other people who under no circumstance will Jesus save, because the repeated testimony in the New Testament is everyone who will come to Jesus, everyone who comes to him, everyone who comes to him and says, I am a sinner in need of a savior. There's not a single example of Jesus rejecting any person who comes to him on his terms. There are a lot of people who want to come to God, but they want to come on their own terms. Cain and Abel. Remember, according to the book of Genesis, Abel offers a sacrifice that's pleasing to God. It's a blood sacrifice. Abel offers a sacrifice that is received by God and acknowledged by God. Cain offers a sacrifice that's the fruit of his own labor. He tills the ground. We're not told exactly what that means, but we also are given the intimation that there's something not quite right with Cain. When the Lord speaks to Cain, he says, sin is crouching at the door and it's asking for you. The implication being that there's something going on inside of Cain's heart that isn't quite right. But the Bible says, for he, that's Jesus, will save his people from their sins. The mission of Jesus is to save people. From their sins. Not simply so they can go to heaven. Not simply so that they can experience cleansing from guilt. If those were the only reasons, those would be worth it. But I'm going to suggest to you that the mission of Jesus is to save people so that they can join a saved community. That saved people can gather together with one another and support one another and encourage one another. The real enemy is sin and the real issue is sin. In John chapter 10 verse 26 and 27, Jesus says, But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. As I said to you, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. You might think that the most surprising miracle in the Bible might be this virgin birth or turning water into wine or opening blind eyes. All of those are notable, amazing miracles, but they're nothing compared to God's forgiving you, cleansing you. Dipping deep inside of the circumstances of your life and your sin and your rebellion and your disobedience. Imagine all that God has done in order to create a mechanism so that he can come and wash you and cleanse you and heal you. Jesus will save his people from their sins. Jesus will save from the penalty of sin and then he will save in our lives from the power of sin and eventually he will save us from the presence of sin in our life. And so in verse 22 it says, so all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. 
The birth of Jesus fulfills prophecy. The supernatural revelation given to Joseph is confirmed by the testimony of prophecy given to the Old Testament. Think, think, think for just a moment. In Joseph's mind, as he's receiving this vision and the declaration from the angel, the pregnancy of Mary isn't a welcome miracle. It's an unwelcome miracle. Imagine somebody shows up and says, Joseph, your girlfriend, your girlfriend, or forget that, your wife, she's going to get pregnant. And Joseph says, what? Yeah, it's going to be a miracle. Nobody's going to be the father. Well, see, you're laughing because you're going, is Joseph going to go, yeah, yeah, I'm all for that. No, he's not all for that. But the presence of Jesus is going to require a miracle. There's going to have to be someone who's going to be prepared to be his mom. And in order for you to be saved, it's going to require a miracle. And for some of you, it's a welcome miracle because you've carried the burden of guilt and you've carried the, the burden of shame and you've carried the, the burden of humiliation. And, and you think about what it would be like to experience joy and release that you don't have to be worried about forgiveness or heaven. You know, the basic elements of prophecy are, number one, prophecy is the word of the Lord, not the opinions or the speculations or the musings of men. And the future is revealed by God and not by human beings. And number two, the prophet is simply the messenger, not necessarily God's press secretary. And number three, prophecy must be fulfilled. It must be fulfilled. It must always come to pass. Predictive prophecy stands as the distinctive element in authenticating the message of the gospel. And so the angel says, behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. He cites the scripture. The Bible has said that a miracle is going to take place in order for God to accomplish what God planned to accomplish. And the critic and the skeptic and the unbeliever will say, it didn't happen. Poor Joseph. What the angel said in your dream is a fantasy. It's wishful thinking of a jilted lover trying to come up with an explanation that doesn't involve stoning your wife. Doesn't one of the scrolls in Isaiah hint at a supernatural birth that may provide a plausible biblical way to go forward in the relationship? But Matthew invites the reader to see Jesus in that scripture. And to see the scripture in Jesus. And so again, it begs the question. Was Jesus born under supernatural circumstances. The Bible says yes. Matthew cites several things. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ, not simply Jesus, but the Messiah, came about. Mary was found with child by the Holy Spirit, verse 18. What's conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit, verse 20. All this is done. So that the scripture might be fulfilled. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son. They'll call his name Emmanuel, God with us, verse 22. 
Matthew presents these facts to confirm the Old Testament prophecies which are fulfilled in Jesus and which makes this book and this story different from every other book and every other story. Do you know how many predictive prophecies there are in the Quran? Zero. Do you know how many predictive prophecies are in the Vedas or the Upanishads? Zero. Do you know how many prophecies concerning the life and the ministry and the death and the resurrection of Jesus are in the Old Testament? By some counts, it's as many as 300. I don't have time to go through all 300. But the Bible says he's going to be born of a woman. He's going to be born of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. That he's going to be a direct descendant of Judah. That he is going to be a direct descendant of David. That he's going to be born in Bethlehem. That he is going to say incredible things. And that he is going to die a horrible death. And that he is going to come back to life. And so Matthew, again, tells us that Jesus is born under supernatural circumstances and that he is God manifest in the flesh. You know, in the early centuries, in the early centuries when Christianity began and and the resurrection has occurred and, and all of a sudden people come into a right relationship with God, there were lots of false views of the incarnation. They sprouted like dastardly dandelions on the lawn of biblical orthodoxy. The Ebionites denied the reality of Jesus' divine nature. They said he wasn't really God. And so John refutes it in the opening verse and the opening chapter of his gospel. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Ebionites, wrong. The second group of people were called the Gnostics. And the Gnostics denied the reality of Jesus' human nature. Instead of saying he wasn't really God, they they would say he wasn't really human. And John, again, in his little epistle of 1 John 1, verse 1, denies that by saying, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and have handled concerning the word of life. John says, no, he's really real, a real human being. The Arians affirmed Jesus' pre-existence as an angelic creature, but denied his deity, like modern Jehovah's Witnesses. There was another group called the Nestorians who believed that two distinct persons comprised Christ. That there was this human person that was called Christ, and there was this divine person that was called Christ, and that he sort of lived with multiple personality disorder. The Eutychians went to the opposite extreme. They affirmed both natures, that there was a godlike nature and a human nature, but the Eutychians believed that somehow there was like a perforation in the human nature and a perforation in the divine nature, and that these two natures leaked into one another, forming yet a third unique and distinct nature. Augustus Strong in his systematic theology offers the true view. He says, quote, 
in the one person, Jesus Christ, there are two natures, a human nature and a divine nature, each in its completeness and integrity. And these two natures are organically and indissolubly united, yet so that no third nature is formed thereby, unquote. And so the orthodox position has always been Jesus is one person with two natures, completely human, completely God, neither mingling with the other, forming the unique and distinct person of Jesus. And of course, does any of this matter? And of course, I think the answer is yes. The reason why I think it's yes is because the scriptures predicted a virgin would give birth to a child, Isaiah 7, 14. The Lord himself said, I'll give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Isaiah says, sign. And I'm going to suggest to you that this is a sign that isn't easily faked by messianic pretenders. If you had a chance to talk to Sun Young Moon, the Korean self-described Messiah, and you went to Sun Young Moon's parents and you said, I don't mean to pry, but was your son like conceived? Were you a virgin and never had relationships with a man? See, you're laughing, but you're starting to get it. Are there lots of people who can make messianic claims? I think that there are people who can make illegitimate claims. You can make legitimate claims and illegitimate claims. Anyone could say, I'm Jesus or I'm the Messiah. And you could go, were you born of a virgin? Were you born in Bethlehem? Are you a direct descendant of David? Well, no. Well, then I got to tell you something. Sorry, you're disqualified. The scriptures say that he would be born of a virgin. The, the scriptures say that Jesus is God. The scriptures say that Jesus is man. The scriptures say that he's a human being without sin. The scriptures say that if salvation is by God's act and not human effort, then the birth of Jesus, at least in one sense, has to be exactly like our own. Not something that you could initiate. How many of you got to say, I'm going to be born into the family that you were born into? Do you remember taking a vote somewhere going, look, if I'm going to be born, I want to be born into a family that's not dysfunctional. I'd like to be born into a family where the mother and the father are present. And I would like to be born into a family where, where there's morality and mercy. I'd like to be born into a family where people know and love the Lord Jesus Christ. But did you get to pick? Did you get to pick? You, you, I'm going to suggest to you that you didn't. Can you be a Christian and not believe in the virgin birth? Let me ask a different question. Can you be a Christian and be really, really wrong? <laughs> Can you be a Christian and be deceived? I suppose it's possible. But the Bible teaches the virgin birth. And therefore, if you reject what the Bible says about the virgin birth, then it makes perfect sense to me that you could reject other things that the Bible says. Why don't you believe in the virgin birth? 
virgins don't have babies. Why don't you believe in the resurrection? Dead people don't come back to life. The truth, if you can believe the opening verse in the opening chapter and the opening line, everything else is easy. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If there's a real God who can do that, can a real God create a mechanism whereby a virgin can give birth to a child? If, if a God can create the heavens and the earth, can a God come into your life and come into your circumstances? Can a God come to you and say, I'm willing to love you and I'm willing to forgive you and I'm willing to cleanse you and I'm willing to give you hope? It says in verse 24, then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded and took to him his wife. Joseph receives a special call. He accepts the call. He obeys that call. Read it again. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded and took to him his wife. You know, the Bible says in Matthew 20, verse 16, many are called, but few are chosen. Many will be invited to enter in. The, the call will go out. The invitation will be extended. Won't you come to him? Won't you believe in him? Won't you trust him? Who does God call? The Bible says that God has chosen the foolish to confound the wise. Not many wise, not many noble. But he calls Joseph. And in verse 25 it says, And did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son. And he called his name Jesus. Mary's pregnancy creates a crisis in his life. It creates a crisis in the life of a good and a decent man. And the realization that God was at work required a revelation for Joseph to go forward and to come to the recognition that Mary was a person that required protection and tender consideration. And you know, some faith traditions have Mary as a perpetual virgin, but the New Testament doesn't support that idea. It says, and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son. Now think about it. Joseph is a just man. Joseph is a moral man. Joseph is a merciful man. Does the angel say to him, by the way, I want you to be married to this girl for the rest of your life, and you can never, ever, ever, never, ever, 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 ever have normal marital relations. Which do you think is weirder? <laughs> See, you're laughing, but you're starting to get it. The Bible does make supernatural claims. But the Bible never ever intimates to us that marriage is anything other than good and decent and honorable. For some people, the ongoing reality of whether or not miracles can take place is always going to serve as a stumbling block. Someone once asked a coal miner, do you believe that Jesus turned water into wine, and the coal miner said, I don't know about water to wine, but he turned beer into furniture. He says, what do you mean? 
He goes, I used to drink, drink, drink. I would go in the mine, I would get my paycheck, and I would go to the bar, and I'd get drunk. But now that I've come to Christ, and I love Jesus, and I'm serving him, guess what? I've stopped drinking, and I bought some furniture for my wife. The claims of Christ might place you in an unwanted predicament in your marriage, at school. We're living in a world that denies the supernatural. They don't have a place in their thinking that something miraculous could take place. But again, I'm going to suggest to you, not only does the Bible affirm that there is such a thing as a miracle... But it's going to take nothing less than a miracle to change your circumstances, to change your heart, to change your life, to cleanse your soul. That revelation will lead you to prompt and patient obedience, or it will lead you to doubt and a disconnection from the claims of the Bible. But it is a predicament, make no mistake about it. Each and every one of us is going to be challenged. Do I believe what the Bible says about Jesus? About who he is? Why he came? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. Lord, we know that an unwanted and an unwelcome miracle was still a necessary miracle in order for everything to be different. And it makes perfect sense to us that if we are going to welcome the miracle of a changed heart and a changed life, it's going to require us to look at sin differently. And to look at miracles differently. And to look at our life differently. Heavenly Father, we know that that doesn't mean irrationally or illogically. Lord, it makes perfect sense to me that even in the presence of a miracle, there are going to be things that we're going to have to think through. And Lord, we thank you for the revelation that's given to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for the Bible and we thank you for the word, of, word made flesh. That in the testimony of the Bible and in the person of Jesus, there are explanations. And so again, Father, we thank you for your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.